few years back, I was watching the Peachtree 10K on TV. And for those of you who aren't uh, into running, probably most Americans don't know what 10K is. It's 6.2 miles. And so anyway, uh, watching the beginning of this race, and as the guys lined up at the front, you, you know, most races typically they put the, the best people in the front, the top runners who have times that have been recorded, and so these are the best people in any race of any caliber. And anyway, at the start of the race, I was watching, and there was several guys you kind of expected. You look at the, their physiques, look at their body. You, you expect them to be at the front. We're just like a minute in. But there's this other guy who's running there with these uh, main guys, and usually the guys that are really good have the lower numbers, they have the, and this guy had a higher number. And so I'm watching, and I'm wondering why the commentators aren't saying anything about this guy. And he, he, uh, they just kind of ignore him. And then after, you know, maybe we're, we're talking a half mile into the race, they're like, oh, that guy right there, just expect him, look for him to fade really quick. He's just trying to get his five minutes of fame here on TV. And sure as the world, almost as soon as they said that, that guy just like dropped back and the race, you know, kept going and that camera stayed on the front guys. And I feel like that's a great illustration for the way we operate in a lot of areas of life, right? We have a lot of people who are fast starters, and then they kind of fade out, right? That's, that's true for a lot of things in life. We can start fast, but we don't end well. And the same is true in Jesus' day. Many people were following him, but it was easy for them to get caught up in the excitement up into all the supernatural things Jesus was doing, the healing, the casting out demons. He's making meals. He's feeding people. He's forgiving sins. And he's offering them the kingdom of God. And so there's a lot of excitement generated around Jesus. But yet, many people by the end had faded off and weren't with Jesus any longer. And Jesus knows this is going to be true. And so there were many people who, even today, they start with Jesus they want Jesus to add to their life, make their life better. People come to Jesus for various reasons. In a tough time, they need strength. They're worried about security, their future. Maybe they've had a little scare with health, and so they can come to Jesus for self-improvement, various things. But at the end of the day, it's easy to start with Jesus, but a lot of people don't finish very well. The appeal of sin, the quick fix of worldly pleasures, pressures from other people around us, or just the fact that, you know what, we lose interest and people fall away, proving their faith was never really truly in Jesus in the first place. And that's exactly what we see in our text today in John chapter 8. We're working through the book of John, and if you're a guest with us, thank you for being here. We're working through the gospel of John, the book of the Bible. We're slowly going through verse by verse, and we're going to be in verses 29 through 34 today. So verses 29 through 34 in, in John chapter 8. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father God, I thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. And God, we thank you for each person here and their desire to take a step closer uh, in their commitment and their following of you, Jesus. And God, I pray that uh, today those who are a bit distracted, maybe that it has been a hectic morning or there's a lot uh, to look forward to later this afternoon, help us just to uh, just right now, each person asks you to still their heart, still their mind, and help them to just absorb these words that we need for life and godliness. And God, I pray that today as we look at the words of Jesus Christ, that as we see um, his words 
today. May they become real in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we start in verse 29, I want to stop, go back to verse 24 to kind of set the context here. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus made it clear. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die. And what he does, he makes another very intentional connection to the Father God, who the Jews worship God the Father, Yahweh God. We've talked a lot about that over the past weeks. Jesus ties himself directly in there through using the name of God, the I am name, and he calls attention to that. And he makes just it crystal clear in this verse that the condition Jesus demands is belief in him. If they're going to escape sin, if they're going to escape death, he says, you must believe in me. And this was radical for the first century. It was radical for us today. Believe in Jesus and he is the way to eternal life with the Father. So he says, believe that I am. Now, in the Gospel of John, he never uses the word faith, believe it or not. John never uses the word faith. Belief and faith are used interchangeably oftentimes throughout the New Testament. In English, we make a distinction. Kind of faith is an elevated level of belief because in our language, belief loses some of its power because we can have superficial belief, as we'll see in this passage. But John never uses the word faith. He uses the word belief. And so in this passage here, he's pointing to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, you have to come through me. And then verse 29, Jesus again connects himself to the Father in this intimate relationship. Again, I, I said this again and again throughout this series. It's easy for us just to hear this and let it go through our minds, but for him to stand and make these claims to be connected to the Father, intimately connected, and the only way to get to the Father is through Him. And they were just you know, taken back by this as much as we would be if this was somebody standing here in front of us saying, you can't get to God unless you come through me. We'd say, the guy's crazy, right? Many, many people think Jesus is crazy, particularly the religious leaders and the scholars. So Jesus reiterates again in our text today, verse 29, He says, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So he stresses this unity with God, this oneness with God, and Jesus says he only does what God wants him to do. He's a messenger from God. He's there. And so because of these claims, because it's clear to them, this I am reference to the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they know what Jesus is trying to claim, and that's why ultimately they're going to kill him. And we've seen already in the book of John, they've tried to arrest him, and they've even attempted to kill him up to this point. So in verse 30, Jesus says, okay, again, let's revisit. He said, believe in me. Okay, verse 30, look at verse 30. And he was saying these things. As he was saying these things, many people believe in him, right? That's the goal. Many people believe. So Jesus is sharing this. He's telling them this. And he's saying, you have to believe in me. Response, time to celebrate, right? The goal has been achieved. The whole book of John, we said, the title of the book of John is what? So that we might believe. That's what John says. I write these things so that you and I will believe in the truth of Jesus. So that's exactly the result Jesus gets, right? He's saying that many people believed in him, John says, because of Jesus saying this. But the problem is 
we've seen in this gospel again and again, Jesus did not always trust such expressions of belief. He did not always trust these expressions of belief. Why? Because true belief carries the idea of trust and commitment. Trust and commitment. True belief requires trust and commitment. Today's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, right? Parents, incredible that God has blessed us with children. Moms blessed you with children in order to disciple them and to help them to grow in their faith and love for the Lord. That's why he's given us children in the first place. And here's a mistake that our churches made growing up, and maybe you made this mistake. In fact, with our younger kids, I think we made this mistake until the more we were in the Word, we realized the danger of this. So when our kids, our, our, kinda, our goal was to get our kids to pray the sinner's prayer, especially the first couple, right? We, we, like, that was what we were trained to do. Like, you get them to pray the sinner's prayer, put their faith in Jesus, and, and then that point, like, you celebrate, and you make a big deal about it, which you should, if they, if they show any inclination or any uh, pointing to Jesus and they respond to that, it's worthy of celebration. So you celebrate that. But here's the, the big mistake that I think a lot of times people make, including ourselves at some point. Then all of a sudden, we begin to celebrate the moment that they put their faith in Jesus rather than realizing that it's God's work through the Holy Spirit that brings salvation. And our job is to continuing just to push them to Jesus, point them to Jesus, and don't say, our job's done. They prayed that prayer. They're in. They're good to go. So now we rest. We've done our job. Move on to other things. And, and, and maybe you wouldn't say that, so to speak, but that's the way we oftentimes we act when our kids come to Jesus or pray a prayer or put their faith in Jesus. We celebrate the event, but we don't really then after that a lot of times put the focus on Jesus and then say, it's all about Jesus. Continue just to, to look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Be in his word. Know him. Trust the gospel. Put your life in the hands of Jesus. But oftentimes we make the mistake of going back and saying when there's questions about salvation, remember you prayed that prayer, right? You prayed that prayer when you were six, right? You remember that. You're, you're, you know, and that was the mistake that we made. And I hope we've taught in this church a better culture, a different culture, where it's not about a prayer that you prayed. It's about faith. And it's about trust that you put in Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And based upon his work, that's where our salvation comes from. And so we don't just breathe a sigh of relief that a prayer has been prayed and then we're good. Because oftentimes that's just about us as parents. Like, we feel better. Like, oh, they're safe. They're in. But we just keep, in fact, this should be meaning that we move harder and harder to push the gospel and, and to teach the gospel and have family devotions and those things. If we really believe it, then that's what we'll do because it's, it's life or death. It's serious. It means everything. And so, sadly, we all know many, many people, including maybe, sadly, some of your children in here, who at one point prayed a fair, pray, prayer of faith. They made a decision for Christ. They came to the front. They responded to an altar call. They made a profession at home at bedtime. But now they're not walking with Jesus whatsoever. In fact, maybe some of your children, they've abandoned Jesus altogether. They've renounced Jesus what happened? What went wrong? We know way too many people in that condition. In fact, one of my students back in Dallas as a youth pastor, this guy led our praise band. He was super instrumental in our youth ministry. And the truth is, looking back, the thing that drew him there 
initially was he, he started to date a girl from our youth ministry, jumped in, got very involved, began to lead worship, a great singer, great guitar player. And in fact, his senior year, he even got up at 7 o'clock in the morning during the summer and came and met with me in my office, me and him and another guy, and we read the book The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozier, not an easy read at all. And we read this book together and talked and discussed. But yet, a few years after going off to uh, a college in California, uh, he renounced his faith, said he's an atheist, doesn't work for him anymore, he says, and he's abandoned Jesus completely. So the concept of belief can be confusing for many people, and I think mainstream Christianity has contributed to that in some degree. And so let's think about this concept of belief for a second, all right? Let's think about it for a second. Everybody in here hopefully believes that George Washington existed, right? George Washington, the first president. We know that when he was alive, many soldiers trusted him. He led them into battle. They put their lives in his hands. He was instrumental in defeating the British. He was very instrumental in the founding of our country. However, it would be safe to say that no one in this room is trusting George Washington today to do anything for you, right? George Washington is not going to do anything for you today. Yet you believe in George Washington. So you see how belief can be something that we just affirm, we know it's true, but it's nothing we trust or commit to or put our lives in the person's hand. I would think if I asked people in this room, how many of you believe that eating healthy and exercise is very, very important, right? I think everybody in here would affirm the fact that they believe that this is true. These facts are true, but yet how many of us have committed ourselves to a healthy lifestyle and a consistent exercise? We believe it's true. We know it's true. We think we know it's going to help us. It's going to be better for us, yet we don't do those things. You see how we can have a belief, but then that belief doesn't mean we're committed to it and we're staking our lives to it. We're resting our hope in it. And this is what Jesus is calling them to. Not a superficial belief that falls short of the standard that Jesus is requiring, which is trust and commitment. And as I said, evangelical Christianity has contributed to this through the praying of the prayer kind of attitude. And the way I grew up, and I don't know if you grew up this way, that you pray to prayer of faith in Jesus, but, but truthfully then you could be a carnal Christian pretty much indefinitely. There was no really you know, requirement, so to speak, for discipleship. It's like you just affirm Jesus and you ask him into your heart. But then if you want to go to kind of that next level and be serious and not be carnal anymore, then you like dedicate your life to Jesus. And it's like almost like a two-part thing. You know, you come to Jesus and then you dedicate to Jesus. And, and, and there's nowhere in Scripture that you find that attitude. You, you see that when you come to Jesus, it's a trust. It's a commitment. You're, you're placing your life into his hands. And, and, and we know, and if you've been part of this church for any of the time, you know that we don't contribute or add to our salvation. It's not our, our sanctification doesn't earn our salvation, but it definitely comes out of true belief in Christ always leads to more and more sanctification, growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But salvation is through Jesus, and we should fight a carnal mindset, a mind, what does the, the Scripture mean by carnal? It, it means living for just the pleasures of self. 
And so this, this idea that, you know, we as Christians, we could just continue on in this carnality and this, this way of just not caring and then one day be fully surrendered to Jesus. But Scripture is clear. Salvation, again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But as Martin Luther said so well, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Sanctification is the sign of salvation, not the cause of it. And so the fruit, Scripture uses the idea of fruit, that if you're in Christ, you're going to bear fruit. You're, you're going to, there's going to be signs of life in our life. And so Jesus said this to them. So how in the world are they going to respond? What's Jesus going to say next when these people who say they believe in him, what's he going to say? Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, what's, what's he going to say to them? He says in verse 31, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide, all right, it's not a word we use a lot, but the word abide has this meaning of staying in a specific location, all right? And so he says, if you abide in my word, and naturally we think about abiding in the word as being abiding in Scripture, in the Bible, and while that's absolutely true and you can't separate your sanctification from this book right here, it actually involves more than just the teachings of Jesus. In fact, if we go all the way back to the beginning of this gospel, all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we're going to see this later up in chapters 15. That We're going to see that abiding means to remain in Jesus, to, to know Jesus. It's his intimacy with Jesus. So abiding in Jesus is to remain in the Word, the Word. So we continue, we dwell, we endure, we're, we're, we remain in Him, and this abiding is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus. And while sometimes that can feel very mystical to us, and obviously there is great mystery in our relationship with Jesus Christ, I think there's some concrete realities to it as well that some of you who have a difficult time with having a relationship with Jesus, I just don't understand how that happens, what that looks like. Well, it definitely involves obedience to his words, obedience to his teaching. It's allowing, as we say a lot here, the word of Christ to fill you up. It's, it's knowing scripture, it's knowing the words, reading the words of Jesus so much that they become just part of who we are and they begin to transform our affections for what we love in life and what we detest in life. And abiding is intimately connected, again, to what we do with our Bibles. And so if we want to abide in Christ, concretely, we must want to be in the Word. We, we should want to know what Jesus says. We should want to begin our day or have an, a, an important part of our day to hear from the one who that we want to follow. And it's tough to follow somebody that you don't know what they say and what they're about. And so that's God is speaking to us primarily through his word, and that's how we can abide in Jesus Christ. So uh, while the relationship with Jesus, again, does involve great ministry, it is something that it has a lot of concrete elements as well. So to kind of summarize up to this point, a genuine believer remains in Jesus, remains in his teaching, 
obeys his teaching, seeks to understand it better, responds in joy as he learns more and more, and finds it more precious and more controlling, even in the face of opposition and persecution. Keep that on the screen for a second. Let's just look at that for a second. All right? So there's this, this, this our affections change. That while it doesn't happen overnight and we put our faith in Jesus and all of a sudden that we're 100% affectionate for Jesus, but there's this growth that takes place and this progression that takes place. And the more that we're in Scripture, the more we fall in love with Scripture and the more we want to know Jesus and have a true, real relationship with Him. And so back to verse 31 again. He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he's saying those who abide in Jesus will know the truth and experience freedom. They'll know the truth and experience freedom. Freedom from what? What is he talking about? The Jews wanted to know that too. When Jesus said, the truth will set you free. They want to know what he's talking about because look at verse 33. They don't think they're in bondage. They answer him, we are all spring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they want to know. And they're assuming as children of Abraham and the fact that they're Jews, that automatically qualifies them for being children of God. And, and they're thinking a political freedom here. They're thinking that they're free, that through Abraham and through their religious heritage, that they have freedom. But being a descendant of Abraham does not automatically make anyone a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So look at Jesus' reply. And in this context, he defines freedom as being, as he contrasts it with sin. He contrasts this freedom by contrasting it with sin. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So those who are free do not practice sin, is what he says to them. So they say, we're free. We've not been enslaved by anyone. And he's saying, hold on for a second, all right? Anyone who practices sin is in bondage. All right? Anyone who practices sin, he says, you're a slave to that sin. And so as he's looking at these people in this first century, and he's looking at them in this bondage, many of them in bondage to a false religious system that was all about earning God's favor. It was all about keeping the letter of the law. And this is what the religious leaders taught them. And this is the, the bad, how, how important it is to sit under biblical teaching. Because it's so easy to spin the gospel and all of a sudden put the emphasis on ourselves and we're earning, 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 earning. And some of you are wired that way because you naturally want to have the rules really tightly defined and you know that if you can keep the rules exactly the way that they're said, then you feel good about yourselves and you don't do good with ambiguity and gray areas because you just need, you need the law. And the law is helpful. The law is good, Scripture says. But the problem was, the Jewish leaders elevated to the law, the law, the, the letter of the law. And when Jesus came and he said, look, I've been the answer from the beginning, that all of history is pointing to this, per, this point where the law has foreshadowed me. All these religious things you did pointed to me. 
They all were about me, and here I am, God standing before you, and he's ultimately rejected, put on a cross, and killed because they loved their religious system and their teachers and their leaders led them down a path of hell and destruction. But when one truly places their faith in Jesus, while we're certainly not made perfect at that moment, something truly radical happens. Think about it. The Holy Spirit is given to you. All right? You are in the, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Scripture uses a, that picture, the fact that he's in you. You've been given a new nature, the old nature, just all it knew was sin, selfishness, wired for itself. But we've been given a new nature, a nature that the Holy Spirit now works to engage and allows us to know the truth, to see the truth, and affirm the truth, and have affections for the truth. That's what the Spirit does. And in fact, Paul says, we've even been given the mind of Christ. So think about this radical radical transition and transformation that happened at salvation. All that happened to you. And so what Jesus is getting at and what the Scripture and throughout the New Testament gets at is the fact that if, if you can say, I'm in Christ, I believe, but there's no change in your affections. There's no change in your desires. There's no change in what you're, you're striving for and going for in life. If there's no pull for you to know the will of God and follow the will of God like Jesus modeled and said, I don't do anything unless the, the, the Father tells me. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And so he's given us this new heart, this new way of existing, this new way of being human. And we live in obedience to the Word as the Holy Spirit illuminates it and makes it real in our life. And we persevere. We battle. It doesn't mean, again, when we come to Christ, it doesn't mean that we're made perfect at that point and we're going to keep sinning and sometimes we're going to keep falling again and again for the same sins again and again and again and again. But something changes. I can't judge a person because only God knows their heart. But I can tell you a story that makes me scratch my head and puzzles me. A, a pastor who had a huge impact on my life. He, he taught at student life camps m several years. He was uh, the pastor of a very big church in Birmingham where student life ministries was based out of. And I heard him teach um, quite a few times, would listen to him on the internet some. Just a very, very, seemed like authentic guy, real guy, really taught the word. Well, fast forward a few years ago, and came out from through the woman who was his mistress that he had carried on this relationship for 15, 20 years since the girl was 18 and he was well into his 30s that they had this relationship that started there and continued on for many, many years until finally she exposed it um, 20 years later or so. It's like, how in the world could a true believer some way work up some sort of justification in his life where he's married and has a family, he's teaching God's word week in and week out, leading people, leading this huge church, yet has this huge hypocrisy in his life. So the point is, it's possible to affirm the name of Jesus 
say all the right things, have a theological education, impress people by your words and your actions, yet all along be living a double life. And it shouldn't surprise us because with Jesus' very inner circle, his 12 disciples, we know that Judas is the perfect example of someone who did all the right things and said all the right things and followed Jesus around, yet all along he was a fake and a hypocrite. And ultimately it was exposed. Our relationship at, at salvation, our relationship with sin changes. We go to war against the sin in our lives through the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And a believer who regularly opens the Scripture and seeks God in His leading and the Holy Spirit's conviction, you just can't, you just can't continue on by having peace with the sin in your life. You're going to battle that sin. And victory is going to be hard fault, and maybe you'll never come to complete victory over some sins. You're going to continue to battle and battle and battle, but you don't stop battling. The perseverance, the, the dedication to God and wanting to be more and more like Jesus, and that motivates us to want to battle the sins in our lives. But when we say, you know, I'm okay with the woman in Texas, and we make our system of justification for that, we've made peace with sin. And it's easy to point out a, a, a sin as obvious as adultery, but other sins are much more subtle and sneaky. But I do believe, as much as I'm standing right here in front of you today, that if you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the sins in your life, the hypocrisy in your life, He's going to be doing his job. And he already already is doing it, and you're probably just tuning it out. And so I encourage you to set before God every day and allow the Holy Spirit just to search your heart. Romans 8, 9, I think this will be on the screen. Paul writes this, You are no longer ruled by your desires, but by God's Spirit who lives in you. People who don't have the Spirit of Christ in them don't belong to Him. So you, you no longer are ruled by your desires. You're, re, you're ruled by Jesus Christ. Pastor John MacArthur says this is a rather long quote. He said, Starting to believe in Jesus is easy. A lot of people do that, but when they start in that direction, and the world, the flesh, and the devil fully empowered by their own fallen nature, starts to pull hard against Christ, the half-believer, loving sin because half-believers still love their sin and unwillingly unwilling to yield to the hard demands of true repentance and humble submission to Christ, falls back. It may take a little while. It may take a long time. You see, if your nature, he's saying your nature hasn't changed, then why would your relationship with sin ultimately change? You're going to keep doing the way you're wired to do. But when you're nature, when you receive a new nature, and the Holy Spirit's within you, all of a sudden there's this, this incredible tension, this worldliness, the devil, the flesh, are still after you, maybe harder after you than they were ever before that you can imagine, because the devil pretty much is going to leave you alone, right, when, when you're a sinner in your sin, dead in your sin. But when you come to Christ, all of a sudden there's more tension. 
There's more pressure. But you know that the pressure is there. But a person who's not truly a believer, they can easily make peace with their sin, even though they may know the facts, they may know the belief system, they may even be able to say it in a way better than I can. But ultimately, their, new nature, their old nature, which is their only nature, will take over and rule their life. The law can't save, spiritual heritage can't save, coming to church can't save. The only thing that can save is Jesus Christ and belief in him. So do you believe Jesus is God? It's a great starting place. Do you believe it's the only starting place? Jesus is God. But you can't end there because even the devils believe and tremble, Scripture says. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? To pay the penalty for your sin? And are you trusting Jesus and Jesus alone, apart from your works, your efforts, how much church you attend, how good you are, how many verses you've memorized? Are you trusting Jesus alone, apart from everything else, for your salvation? All right? So maybe you got those intellectual facts down. What about the trust and commitment part? Is your, is your, are you wholeheartedly, imperfectly, Embracing Jesus Christ. Do you want to know him, as Paul said? I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. I want to be partners with you in your suffering. That we understand that Jesus is life, Jesus is everything. That we now serve a new master. Sin's not your master. Jesus is your master. So the head application, gospel belief results in life, long love and trust in the person of work and work of Jesus that motivates and empowers obedience and holiness. Look at that on the screen. Read it with me to yourself. Gospel belief results in lifelong love and trust in the person and work of Jesus that motivates and empowers obedience and holiness. And I put that graph on the screen, and we've used this again and again because it's a good reminder we can definitely go through periods of our time, of our life, where we're struggling and maybe we're not growing. We're really, really like struggling with things in life. But it doesn't, it's not permanent. It doesn't stick around. We continue on that trajectory to Christ's likeness. Because he who began the good work in us will finish it. He's going to keep us going and moving in that direction. And so, yes, maybe right now, today, you're in that period where you're struggling. And maybe it's, it's a known sin in your life, or maybe it's just, just adversity in your life. And you know that you're just, just coasting, and you feel like you're not really pursuing Jesus. Let today be a wake-up call. Let this be the day where you confess and say, Jesus, I know you. I know I have a relationship with you. But I've allowed other things to take the priority of my life. And today, I'm reaffirming the fact that your Lord and my whole purpose in this life is to grow to be more like you so I can bring glory to God. So that's our, the head. Now, what do we do with our heart? With our heart, I love Psalm 119.10. David wrote, With my whole heart I seek you. Will you pray that every day? Or maybe pray, God, I want my whole heart to seek you. Or maybe I want to want 
my whole heart to seek you. Many days, that's my prayer. I, I want to want because I just don't want it. Be real with God. Talk to him honestly in prayer. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. Is that the cry of your heart? And then our hands, and this is important. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This word provision in the original language carries the idea of thinking about what you will do in the event, something that will happen, that something that happens. And so what we got here is this idea of making provision for the flesh is, is almost like taking gasoline and pouring it on the flesh. That you're just, you're just taking activities and events and circumstances and where you hang out, what you do, what you watch. And it's almost like pouring gas. And it's only a matter of time before that flesh just blows up and explodes in passion because you're doing, you're allowing your mind to go places and you're giving provision to the flesh. He says, don't make any provision for the flesh. He says, stop those thoughts when they're here in your mind. Put an end to it before you allow those things to begin to take root and to grow and turn from something that's maybe Satan just put into your mind, then something that you allow to just kind of settle there and it rests for a while. And if once you get there, it's only a matter of opportunity before you actually act on what you're thinking about, right? We know that's true. And so, will you pray that prayer? God, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments and then make no provision for the flesh. That's an actionable thing. Maybe it involves a close friendship with someone that you know every time you're around, it turns into something really, really rotten and bad. Maybe it's just what you're viewing, what you're watching. Maybe it's a relationship, again, that somebody who's just all they do is gossip. You get around them and you just turn into a gossip. Make no provision for the flesh. God, I want to know you. I want to seek Jesus. Thank you for the free gift of salvation. Now let me walk in that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the words of Jesus that lead us and guide us into life and eternal life. God, I don't want to see anybody in Grace Church family to die in their sins. And God, I pray that those who maybe they know their belief has very, been very superficial, they've just been going through the motions, God, I pray that today will be their day of salvation. For those who maybe they, they're, they're struggling right now, help them not to act in fear, but act in faith by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. And just go back to the simple truth of the gospel and keep their eyes upon you and not make provision for the flesh. It's so easy when we get away from you and we're going the wrong direction to begin to question our salvation. And many times, God, that's, that's, a, that's a warning sign from you. It's a good reminder for us. And God, I pray that those who embrace their sin and made peace with their sin, that today there will be a degree of uncertainty, God, and they'll run to you and run to Jesus for all their hope. We pray in the powerful, strong name of Jesus. Amen.